Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Remembering and celebrating and replaying all of the good time that we shared together last Sunday on Football Sunday, the day of the Super Bowl, of course, as you know. We had an incredible day here at Heritage, a day full of food and fun at our lunch gathering after services last week. We had some exciting football-themed competitions for all ages. We gave away some fun prizes, and we got everybody home in plenty of time to catch a nap uh, before the final game of the NFL season when the Chiefs beat the Eagles. I know some of you were excited about that, right? Some of you, maybe you were all in second service. Never mind. I'm sorry, all you Eagles fans. I know we've got some Chiefs fans here who were excited, and I know we've got some Eagles fans who were disappointed, but if you were in the room last week, You may recall that we also had a few of our family members who showed up and the team they were rooting for was different. The jersey was black and white with vertical stripes because they were rooting for the referees. Rather than cheering for the Chiefs, yeah, there were a few of you who were really excited about that team. Rather than cheering for the Chiefs or pulling for the Eagles, some of our friends in our church family decided that they wanted to support the refs who had just as important a role to play in the outcome of last week's game. And as I think about it, you know, being an NFL referee has got to be a challenging job. You know, there are so many different violations to constantly be looking out for, so many split-second judgments that have to be made, but I have to think that the toughest part of being an NFL referee has got to be in those moments that happen all too frequently when some of the players get so caught up in the emotion of the game that they start pushing and shoving when the play is not in motion, right? When, when after the play is over, some of the aggressiveness and some of the testosterone and all of that is just overflowing, and it turns out that people start pushing and shoving one another after the whistle has been blown. Seems to happen a lot in the later stages of the game when people are getting more and more tired and the game is coming down to the wire and then suddenly somebody's temper boils over and somebody gets pushed and that's how it gets started. Suddenly you've got a a bunch of muscle-bound egos who are trying to take out their frustration on one another and then in the middle of all of that there's the referees. Usually the smallest people on the field, some of them are female, and they're in there trying to break up the fight between all of these 300-pound guys before it ramps up and gets out of hand. And I wonder, have you ever found yourself in the middle of a fight where you were the one trying to break things up? I saw a news story in my feed this week about a guy in Florida who was out walking his pit bull And suddenly, out of the brush near the sidewalk, the dog got pounced on by a bobcat that was hiding in in that brush. And the story in the news showed pictures of this man's hands and arms that were all scratched up and bloody because, as he says, I punched that bobcat in the face. 
He played right into that Florida man meme, didn't he? Can you imagine? I mean, I've got some stories. I've got some pretty intense stories that me and my friends have seen over the years. I've got one friend who got into a wrestling match with a home intruder who had made his way into their home and was threatening his children. I myself have had stories of instances when I was the only thing standing between my family and a medium-sized spider. (laughs) I mean, it's serious, y'all. But trying to break up a fight between a pit bull and a bobcat, that's the kind of situation that I want to stay out of. But life will sometimes present you with some moments or you've got to decide if you're going to get involved, right? Life presents all sorts of opportunities to insert yourself into someone else's fight. There is a steady stream of outrage and offense that's going on in the world around us, and we are constantly being invited, challenged, and even provoked to pick a side. Now, you could be talking about something as serious as war or politics or prejudice or domestic violence, or you could be talking about something as seemingly mild as gossip and drama among a group of friends at school or at work. But we live in an environment of constant hostility. Everywhere we look, there are examples of resentment and aggressiveness and bitterness. This is a conflict-riddled culture that we live in. Depending on your temperament, depending on your temperament, your microphone might work, and sometimes it won't. I don't know. Depending on your temperament, you might be the kind of person who likes to get involved. You might be the kind of person who's got the heart of a fighter. Maybe you're the kind of person who likes to stand up for the underdog. Maybe you are someone who you just deep down, you just can't tolerate a bully. There are some people who just want to mix it up. Some people who want to get their hands dirty. And then there are others who are more conflict avoidant. We'd rather just step away rather than get involved, if at all possible. We don't enjoy the fights. We don't enjoy the arguments. Everybody's got their own personality and everybody's got their own appetite for conflict and there's not one that's better than another. But what if, what if we were being invited and challenged to participate in a brand new way? What if our experience with Jesus, our experience as disciples, our experience as people who know the story of the kingdom of God, what if our experience with Jesus was calling us to a particular type of engagement when conflict arises? I mean, you and I both know it's impossible to avoid conflict altogether, right? Not gonna happen. But today, I wanna suggest to you that our knowledge of God's story our awareness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has said actually gives us a role to play and an assignment to tackle when it comes to conflict that involves us and even conflict that doesn't directly involve us. Today I wanna show you how Jesus invites us to a certain type of presence 
a certain way of being in the world, a certain kind of active engagement in this culture that is always looking for something to fight about and always looking for something to disagree over. Of course, if you've been part of Heritage at all over the last seven weeks, you know that since the beginning of the year, we've been in a sermon series of messages called The Good Life. And in this series, we've been turning our attention to the opening words of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the New Testament portion of your Bible. This Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters, this is the longest recorded teaching that we have from Jesus, and it reveals Jesus' remarkable vision for the world and for his followers. In particular, in the introduction, which is where we've been camping out during this series, in the introduction to the sermon, Jesus makes a list of blessings or beatitudes, which is just another word for blessings. And part of the reason that this introduction and the whole sermon is so remarkable is because what he had to say was unexpected. What he had to say was unusual. Jesus was putting a new spin on some old assumptions that people had about religion. Jesus was put to giving a new take, a hot take about what people thought they understood about righteousness. And the people who heard Jesus deliver this sermon in person 2,000 years ago, they were probably dumbfounded at how he reordered the priorities of their established religion. I mean, he was turning the apple cart upside down with these statements and with this sermon. But I want to tell you today, though, that for people with spiritual receptivity, for people with curiosity, Jesus' words are still just as revolutionary today, 2,000 years later. You don't have to be in the original audience to be captivated by what Jesus has to say. So let me take you to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through the Beatitudes one at a time at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, the statement that Jesus makes is this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's so short, we'll read it again. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Of God. I don't know in your mental imagination, I don't know what image comes to mind for you when you hear the word peacemaker. I know there's a DC Comics superhero who's called the peacemaker. I also know that the peacemaker was the nickname of a particular six-shooter pistol that dominated the Wild West, and you've seen it in a thousand movies. When you hear the word peacemaker, maybe you think about a law enforcement officer, or maybe you picture those United Nations peacekeeping forces with their signature blue helmets. But when you hear this word peacemaker, there's a, a mental image that likely comes to mind for you, and the people in Jesus' time had some images that came to mind for them too. Two particular images were likely for them. One that had very little to do with real peace, and one that was the peace that they dreamed about 
You see, this was a time in history when the Roman Empire was enormous. That white space in the middle of the map is the Mediterranean Sea. And so you can imagine just how broad the Roman Empire had spread on that map. This was a time when the Roman Empire was enormous and it was still growing, still expanding. And so most people who heard about peace immediately thought about the peace of Rome, or the Pax Romana. The Roman Empire was so powerful, so enormous, their military was so mighty that they just smothered hostility anywhere they went. They put a stop, they, they put their thumb down on any kind of rebellion that would start to pop up anywhere. And when any of the little states, the little nation states that were occupied by the Roman Empire, when they started fighting with each other, Rome just sent in the imperial army and said, quit it or else. And so essentially, throughout all of the area that's highlighted in red on this map, essentially there was a sustained peace or at least an absence of war because the Romans were big enough that they could decide that that was how it was going to be. They were bad enough that nobody could reasonably challenge their reign. But... Just because nobody could reasonably challenge the Romans didn't mean that nobody wanted to challenge the Romans. In fact, the Pax Romana was a sort of a misnomer because it wasn't really a peace at all. It was just a temporary absence of hostilities. It was a might makes right kind of situation. And the Roman Empire was mighty enough to make the rules and set the terms for their subjects, but that didn't mean that the subjects liked it. And the reality was that most of the subjects of the Roman Empire spent their entire lifetimes wishing that there was a way out from under the Romans, wishing that there was a way to escape, wishing that they had the strength and the numbers to fight back. They weren't experiencing inner peace at all. They were experiencing a false peace. They were experiencing just the absence of the ability to fight back. But there's another kind of peace, a real authentic kind of peace. And in Israel, they have a word for this kind of peace. They call this peace shalom. Now, shalom is a word that happens over, it, it occurs over 250 times in the Old Testament portion of our Bible. Shalom is about wellness. It's about harmony. Shalom means Everything is happening and going along as it was intended to happen. When Jewish people would greet one another, they would say shalom because they were extending an offer and wishing the hope of peace on their neighbor. They would bless their children with a prayer that said, may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his shalom. This was a everyday word in Jewish culture. In fact, you could think of shalom as the Old Testament equivalent of salvation. Because when you experienced shalom, you were experiencing peace in every facet of your life. Peace with God, peace with your neighbor, peace with yourself. Shalom is the gift that only God can give. And I know I know you understand the difference between those two different kinds of peace. You understand what I mean by a false peace, the Pax Romana, the false peace that happens just because the fighting has gone quiet for a little while. 
You can be in a war zone. In between battles, it may sound peaceful, right? But everybody longs for peace and quiet, and peace and quiet are not the same thing. Quiet doesn't mean peace. Just because things are quiet doesn't mean things are peaceful. Real peace is God's gift of shalom. And maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've had some fleeting moments in your life where you had that feeling that everything was going as it should go. Maybe you've had some fleeting moments in your life where your heart was at rest and you weren't anxious and you weren't wanting to be someplace else and you weren't panicked and you weren't afraid. Maybe you've experienced some of those whispers, some of those moments of shalom in your own life when you were completely content and at peace with God and with others and with yourself. But I'll bet, I'll bet that if you've ever experienced that kind of feeling, you probably found it difficult to stay there, didn't you? You probably found it difficult to maintain that because we live in this hostile, aggressive culture. We always have something that we could be worrying about. We always have something that could make us angry. We always have something that we could be afraid of. We always have something out there that could rob us of our shalom. And that's the trouble. That's the trouble with our culture. It's the trouble with human nature is that we aren't good at spreading shalom. We like it. We want it. We crave it. But we aren't good at spreading it. When we feel at peace, we almost always sense a threat to that peace really quick. I mean, pretty soon after we start to feel it, we find something to be upset about, something to be offended by, something to fear, and shalom just disappears as quickly as it showed up. There's a story in Matthew chapter 18 that illustrates this idea very vividly. Jesus tells a parable about a servant who owed an enormous debt to his master, but he didn't have the money to pay. I mean, he owed a lot of money, and he didn't have it. And when the master called the servant in to collect on the debt, the servant got on his knees, and he begged, and he pleaded for more time to come up with that money. But instead of simply giving the servant more time, which is what the servant asked for, and it would have been a merciful response from the master. Instead of doing that, the master did something even better. He forgave the debt entirely. He erased this man's liability. He offered the man shalom because he removed his burden. And it's hard to imagine. Hard to imagine what that might have felt like to suddenly, all of it, out of nowhere, have the weight of a huge, enormous debt removed when you didn't do anything to pay it off. It's hard to imagine how peaceful that would feel. But the servant's experience of shalom only lasted for a few minutes because in the story Jesus tells, as this man was on his way home, he ran into another guy who owed him a few bucks, like had borrowed money for lunch last week, you know, a little debt. And when the two of them locked eyes, this servant, the one whose net worth had just skyrocketed because his liabilities had been erased from the ledger sheet, the one who was experiencing shalom for the first time in a long time, when he locked eyes with the guy that owed him lunch money, suddenly he found himself angry again. Suddenly the shalom went away. 
Suddenly, he was worried about something. Maybe he was worried that he was being taken advantage of. Maybe even with no debt, he didn't have enough money in his pockets to buy food for that week. I don't know. Whatever he was afraid of, it completely shattered the shalom that he had been feeling just moments earlier when his big debt was canceled. And so when his debtor, the man that owed him lunch money, asked him, could I please have a little more time? When his debtor begged and pleaded for just a little bit of mercy, the original servant said, no way. And he pressed charges against the man for failure to pay. And Jesus tells this imagined story, this made-up parable, to point out just how easy it is for us to enjoy God's gift of shalom without sharing it with others. It's so easy for us to experience, crave, want, desire shalom, and yet not be able to give it away. We can receive God's peace, but extending peace to someone else who's mistreated us or who owes us something, that, that's really challenging for us. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about being peacemakers. He's talking about wanting the same kind of peace for others that we want for ourselves. A peacemaker is someone who takes the peace that they've received, the peace that they've been gifted, and shares it with others so that it spreads. A peacemaker is someone who has shifted gears in their heart so that they quit looking out just for themselves and for the people in their inner circle, but they also start to look out for the needs and the interests and the desires of strangers, foreigners, and even enemies. And the thing about that is, at some point, at some point in the process, peacemaking requires somebody to make a decision to quit fighting. At some point in the process, if peace and shalom are going to spread, somebody has to make a decision that says, I'm not fighting you anymore. I'm not going to try to win. I'm not going to try to get even. I'm not going to try to get revenge. I'm not going to try to pay you back for what you did to me. Somebody at some point along the way in the peacemaking process has to make the decision to stop fighting or else the shalom goes away. Of course, there's always going to be a reason to fight. There's always going to be reasons that we should get back in that defensive posture. There's always going to be reasons to feel offended. There are always going to be reasons to feel angry. But a peacemaker is someone who has received the gift of God's love and decided, I'm not letting go of it this time. A peacemaker is someone who has received the gift of God's love and they've decided they're going to hold on with everything they've got, but because it's so big, they're not going to be able to hold it all by themselves and so it gets spread out to the people around them. A peacemaker is someone who is so rooted in their knowledge of God's love that their own inner peace is not fragile anymore. It doesn't break easily. A peacemaker 
has enough peace on the inside that they're able to share. I saw a story on the news recently about a tattoo parlor in Kentucky that's trying to make peace in their community. They decided that they were going to offer standing free tattoo services, you know, tattoo appointments to anyone who wanted to come in and cover up a tattoo they had previously gotten that had gang symbols or hate speech or anything that was peace-breaking in it. And this tattoo shop owner said, there's a lot of people that when they were younger, they just didn't know any better, and they were left with mistakes permanently printed on their bodies, and we just want to make sure everybody has a chance to change. And I love this story because of the difference that the tattoo shop owners are making in their community. They're erasing Confederate flags. They're removing gang signs and nicknames that perpetuate division and suspicion between people. But you've got to know they're doing this at a cost to themselves. It's costing them something. It's costing them time. It's costing them supplies. It's costing them in the form of appointments that could go to paying customers. And so peacemaking is costing the owners of this shop something. But they do it because they themselves have experienced peace and they want to share it. They want other people to experience the peace that they themselves have received. And I just wonder, I just wonder what it would take for you and I to adopt that kind of a posture. What would it take for you and I to do the same? For you and I to have had such an experience with Jesus, such a confidence in God's love for us that we no longer feel like we have to fight, that we feel like we can be makers of peace. You know, as you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and I highly encourage you to do this, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 ought to be bookmarked and worn out in your Bible because this is really important part of Scripture for us. But as you read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and through the rest of the teachings of Jesus and, in fact, through the rest of the New Testament, you will find that God places a high priority on restored relationships between people. That where there are relationships that have been broken because of hostility, because of aggression, because of hurt feelings and offense, God places high priority on bringing those relationships back into shalom, harmony, peace. Jesus calls his disciples to be the kind of people who are specialists at relationship repair. I don't mean just the 12 disciples 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about us. Jesus calls his disciples to be relationship repair specialists, the kind of people that other people ask, how, do you, how would you fix this? Jesus calls us to be the kind of people who spread shalom, who spread peace. And it's a good start. It's a good start to just suppress the urge to be hostile. It's a good start on the peacemaking journey to just squash down that urge you have inside to be aggressive in your disagreements with others. But I need to tell you that Jesus is dreaming of something much bigger for you, much bigger than just the self-control it takes to not fight, much bigger than just the, the, 
the self-control that it takes to not be aggressive and vengeful. Jesus isn't just looking for restraint. Jesus is looking for reconciliation. Jesus is dreaming that we would be reconcilers. Jesus is not just calling us to keep the peace. He's calling us to make peace. Not to be just maintainers, but sharers and producers of peace. And when we do, when we do, Jesus says, people are going to notice that. People are going to notice something different about you. You know, it's amazing, and you know this, you know, it's amazing how, how much children are prone to resemble their parents. They say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and chances are that you probably have a resemblance, a striking resemblance to your parents, at least in temperament, if not in the way you look. And Jesus makes this statement that we've read today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And he's not talking about a title. He's not saying suddenly people are going to start referring to you by this revered title, he's talking about a resemblance. He's talking about how you would begin to resemble your heavenly father. Because God is a God of reconciliation. He's a God who forgives big debts. He's a God who offers peace to hurt and angry people. God is a peacemaker. Which means that when someone who knows God starts spreading peace, when someone who knows God starts sharing shalom, other people are going to look at that and say, boy, they look like their dad. Boy, they look like their heavenly father. What a striking resemblance. Wouldn't that be the dream for us? Wouldn't it be the dream for us to resemble Jesus so vividly that sometimes people get us confused. That sometimes people think, boy, that looks just like Jesus to me. Jesus is telling us how to do it. To be a peacemaker. To be a shalom sharer. If you will imitate God's peacefulness, peacemaking, Jesus says, You'll look just like, just like the image that was planted in you from the beginning, the one that got obscured, the one that got messed up, but you'll look just like what you were created to be. I love this beatitude. I love it because it's one that we can act on so clearly, so precisely. We know what to do. We know there doesn't have to be a, whole, be a whole lot said to tell you about places in your life, relationships and connections you have where peace could be built. The challenge is having the spiritual strength to move forward, isn't it? 